With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. And Steel Bishop has been good enough to jump on the line with us now, uh, joining us on Tokyo Bound 23rd of July. The Olympics gets underway with the opening ceremony. And this man was at the 1972, the infamous Munich Olympic Games. His journey in to cycling uh, and through is fascinating, and it's great to have him on Tokyo Bound. Steel, hello to you. Uh, good evening, Sam. Thanks for having me uh, on tonight. I'm really, really uh, looking forward to it. No, thank you for your time. So from what I understand, you started racing and cycling at the age of uh, about 13. You've still got every trophy that you've ever had. How did you get into cycling uh, as a young man growing up in Kalamunda, about, uh, which I think it's about 35 minutes east of Perth? Yes, up in the foothills, yeah. Um, born and bred Kalamunda boy. Um, yeah, I, I was given a ride on a, a friend's bike at primary school um, and it was a just such an exhilarating feeling being on a, a racing bike. It's a track bike, no brakes, no gears, mm. uh, fixed wheel. And going down the road on that was just so exhilarating and dangerous. I just loved the feeling and it, that got it into my blood a little bit. And then um, the process worked from there by going and watching him race and then watching uh, national professionals race at the championships at Lake Munger and then setting the, the goal that I want to do this and um, saved up for six months for my first bike. So was it your grandmother that got you your first bike? Um, my very first bike I bought um, from Flash Cycles in Midland. It cost $13 <laughs> in 1966. Um, but I think Dad might have paid a little bit towards that. Uh, and I had that for a little while and then... I showed a bit of promise, so my grandmother bought me some second-hand bikes from uh, a guy named Peter Robinson who wasn't going to race anymore, and I had those right through to selection for Munich. That, that's extraordinary, isn't it? So you, every time you're on those bikes in the lead-up to and at an Olympics, you're on uh, a set of bikes that, that your grandma got you. It must give you the that, – that gives me the warm and fuzzies. I can only imagine what it does for you. Well, I didn't, didn't, I didn't think of it that way, but um, it actually – when I look back at it, I think it's, it's it's really not about the equipment you've got. It's about what's in your heart and, and how much you want something to uh, what you can achieve. It doesn't matter what equipment you've got. And my equipment wasn't good enough to really go to the Munich Olympic Games, but um, but I made it into the selections, you know, which was interesting. It, it was. And so at 19 years of age, you're the, the youngest cyclist at that time ever to be selected uh, you you were picked for the four thousand meter team pursuit, but it wasn't all smooth sailing, and and you had to sort of go off the beaten track, so to speak, in order to get selection, given the rules and restrictions in and around that time. Yeah, it's interesting because I was here as a junior at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, around there. I was winning everything in WA, and I wasn't really improving. I thought I've got to go where the the best in Australia are to get better competition so I can improve 
and my goal was the following Olympics. That was my goal I wanted to go to. So I went to Melbourne and um, and I was living there. And once you back in those days in the seventies, when you were racing in a state for more than three months, you actually had to take a racing license out for that state. So I actually became a Victorian rider. And um, the selections for the Munich came up as the Australian titles in Adelaide in uh, 72 in March and uh, I got selected as a reserve for the Victorian team and it was probably political, you know, being really a West Australian they didn't want me in but I got as a reserve in the team and I went off to Adelaide and, and ended up getting selected but what actually happened, I only found out probably four or five months ago uh, John Trevorrow, one of the road riders at those games, told us that um, John Weir was in the team for the uh, Victorian team in Adelaide and he had a blue with the officials before the racing and he went home. So that left a spot in the team's pursuit. So I was raised from reserve to getting a ride and ended up going to the Olympics. Is that, is uh, that right? Have you have you spoken to John Weir since you found that out? Do you... Do you... No, no, I haven't. <laughs> uh, Isn't it a so a sliding door moment where someone just goes, yeah. just they get into it. He he says, "No, nah, that's it. I'm out." Off he goes, and then the door opens for you. Yeah, I mean, I was so green under the ears, Sam. We, we 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 when I say we got selected for the Olympics, they said, "Look, we've never taken a team to shoot to the Olympics before." But if you guys can ride a, a certain time, got a month to train and, and do this time, we'll take a team. So we get down to North at Bellodrome in Melbourne, and Remo Sancinetti is one of the, the, the teammates. He's from Italy, but he's Australian. And he says, look, well, before we start training, um, if they really they, they suck me right in here because I'm only really green under the ears. They said, look, uh, over in the Northern Hemisphere, they ride anti-clockwise. So we're going to have to start training to do that, to get used to it. So I got on the track with Remo and rode around the wrong way, around the track for a while, warming up. And then they then they sat down and said, OK, well, now we're going to have to change our wheels and chain rings over to the other side of the bike. And you know, and then they all started to laugh. But they really sucked me in, had me riding, riding around the track. <laughs> Sorry, riding around the track the wrong way. Uh, that's very humorous. Uh, it's great thing teams, aren't they? Yeah, and little initiations or, or hazings of, of a good nature along the way. So when you finally got over there, yourself, uh, Danny Clark, uh, you mentioned Remo Sansonetti and Philip Sawyer, that was the team. Didn't yes. quite go according to plan when you got there to Munich. No, I mean, we, we were training well and doing well in Australia. Um, but when we got over there, Danny had to train for his time trial, which ended up a silver medalist, which is amazing. Mm. He just rode so well. So he's training for that. So he couldn't train in the team's pursuit. And John Bilsner was a, another rider that could have been riding the, the team's pursuit, but he's training for the individual pursuit. And that left three of us. And Phil Sawyer got um, very ill through nerves, I believe, and was in bed for two days before the Olympics. Um, so it left me and Remo Sanzanetti, the four-man team's pursuit, down to two of us training together. Um, which is ridiculous, but anyway. And then it came to the race day, and um, Danny Clark was just so much better than everyone, and I still say he's the best all-round track rider I've ever seen in the world. Um, uh, and he's up in Queensland now. But he um, just went through too hard all the time for us. It wasn't smooth because we hadn't trained together. He just ripped it out of us, and we ended up riding 
about three seconds slower than we normally did and missed out on 43 hundredths of a second by qualifying the last eight. So uh, a bit disappointing, but hey, it was just so exciting to be at the Olympic Games. What what was, uh, before we get to that fateful morning of September 5th, What before all that, what did stand out to you about being there? What was your feeling and what was your Olympic experience? Well, the opening ceremony was just fantastic to be involved with the atmosphere there all of those people all of those athletes from around the world I mean, standing amongst the best in the world at every discipline um that's just an amazing just a, i'm tingling thinking about it now it's such an incredible feeling to be there and being around the olympic village and you know, all the big names are, are there um and just see them and you say hi you're in the, the, the dining room with them and it's just mixing with the best. It's got something special to it. Speaking to Steele Bishop, who represented Australia at the 1972 Olympics in the uh, team pursuit, the 4,000 metre. Um, of course, Munich now still lives on in memory, maybe more so for the events of September 5th when uh, the group of Palestinians stormed the Olympic Village, uh, the apartments of the Israeli athletes killing two and another nine taken hostage. What are your memories of that day? Well, my memories didn't start till later that morning because we'd finished racing. Um, this sounds terrible. And we went into town and uh, we celebrated um, the track riders, the, the, the Australian boys. And uh, anyway, I, I, all I remember is waking up in this bar at about four in the morning or whatever it was when they left me there <laughs> um, to pay the bill. Oh. And I got a taxi back to the village. And there's no one on the gate. I mean, the security wasn't security. The, gate, the, the fences were probably eight foot high, no barbed wire or anything. You can hop over them easily. There's no no guy on the gate to just check your pass. I thought, oh, it's unusual. So I walked in. Now, the centre of the the hub of the whole village is your eating area. And from there, you've got three directions you could go to accommodation. And the Palestinians went into the left-hand section Australians, we lived in the right-hand section and still went into the middle section. Ended up in the uh, top floor of the uh, Spanish um, accommodation. And woke up in the morning at 7.30 and, and, and uh, not a real good state and went and found my way back to our place. And our managers were just coming out of the... going into the lift to go to their managers' meeting that morning. And uh, our... He just saw me and grabbed me and threw me in his room and put me in the bath, put me in jammies, threw me in the bed, locked the door, told him to keep away. And at 11 o'clock that morning, they came in and opened the door and woke me up and told me what happened. So I sort of missed it all. But um, actually, walk the section of the village and see the terrace on the uh, balcony with their submachine guns and balaclavas that close, you know, which you wouldn't be able to these days. How scary of a of a situation was it when you realised what was happening and then when you were able to see what was unfolding? Well, firstly, I thought, how fortunate was I that I didn't go left into the first, into that section. I could have quite easily wandered in there instead and I wouldn't be here today probably. Um, but to see it actually unfold, was it was, yeah, it was very scary because um, this is, this is it was just, so tragic to see, and the Italians were right near it. 
apparently, and after it all happened, Remo took us over there and we talked talk to them and they told us they saw the whole thing unfold in front of their eyes. Um, and it was it was just horrible, yeah. And how did it change everything uh, after that uh, from your eyes, Steel? Well, fortunately, we'd finished racing, so our racing didn't affect. Um, but the next day after it all happened, they had all the flags at half-mast in the main stadium and had a memorial service. And then the um, ROC officials decided um, the games will go on, which I think is the right thing. And uh, they started up the next day and off they went again. But it was, yeah, it, it was just so sad. I mean, fellow athletes have been yep. um, killed, you know. Um, and hell, it hell. It was just, that, that's when security changed for Olympics forever, yeah. How long did it last for and how long did it feel like it went for? And do you remember the culmination of the of the incident? It felt, yeah, it felt like days, actually, but it, I think it was only about 18 hours overall, if I recall. Um, and, from, and, and they brought in helicopters to take them out, and we believe, we've been told uh, at the time, um, that they went to the airport and one of the... Um, terrorists wanted to go and check the plane out that they're going to take them all out in and um, a sharpshooter took him out and the rest of them went crazy and just blew the helicopters to pieces and whatever and everyone and shot everyone and then uh, one of them escaped from the airport would you believe um, because security wasn't such a big thing back then um, and they did get him eventually I think But uh, and then we know that the the movie about me, what happened. Does it, does it something that you still revisit, given it was so close to what happened and how it all happened? No, I, I don't, don't look back on the past at, at bad things. I try not to. Um, I look at all positive stuff all the time, um, all the good things that have happened, um, and what, all, uh, and focus on the future and where we're going and what we're going to do and what we're going to achieve and how we're going to do it. Um, yeah, but no, I don't, I don't dwell in on things like that, no. Well, it certainly did. I mean, it, it, it is, it will live on uh, in infamy, I suppose, forever. And, and uh, I can only imagine what it did to change um, the world at the time and, and the Olympics at the time and uh, your own experience at the time and for everybody there, it, Interestingly, though, that after the Olympics, in what wasn't such a successful run for you, Steele, in the, over the next decade, you did achieve world championship success. Not Olympic success, but world championship success. Yes, I, uh, I actually, well, see, I, I've, Sam, I've actually written a book on it all called Wheels of Steel, The Makings of a World Champion, and my memoirs. And, and in that, it, it shows how I set the wrong goals. I want to represent Australia. I didn't say I want to win an Olympic medal, you know, and it should have been more specific. And then, so I'd, I'd done that, and I thought, well, what next? So I thought, I want to re- represent Australia at the World Championships. I went to the, lived in Holland the next year, and went to Spain to the World Championships, achieved that wrong goal again, and ended up um, uh, retiring from racing, and then got enticed back by money as a professional, and then uh, decided. Um, to have a go at the Worlds many years later. Um, my coach saw the potential and 
put that seed of, of, of um, into my brain that hey, you could be a world champion and just improve a little bit more. And we worked out a plan and team and and had a go at that. And we had two goes at world championships and uh, through various reasons, I didn't achieve it. I could have, but didn't. And I, re- I retired again. And on my retirement day, I was awarded the Oppie Oscar Award at, in Brisbane for the best performance of an Australian in Australia for the year. And I thought, oh, that was great. Good, good way to step back from the sport, winning another award. And I opened up the envelope and it was a return trip to the next World Championships. <laughs> oh, great. Just retired. <laughs> so we went back again and, and used all the knowledge and experience we'd had over the past two years and, um, and put it all together with a good team and won in Switzerland in 1983. Uh, absolutely sensational and well worth the read. Uh, steelbishop.com.au uh, if you wanted to get on and, and have a read of that book, Wheels of Steel, The Makings of a World Champion. You returned in 2019 to the World Masters as well. Um, you, you, your contribution to cycling in this country cannot be denied. Uh, you're Order of Australia medalist as well, Steel. Um, how do you enjoy retirement in these days? Well, I had retired as, as- uh, for 35 years and then got enticed back to the Masters as you just alluded to and um, had to go after 35 years off had 13 months really hard training I think I Sam I think I trained harder that 13 months than I did when I was a professional um, because I had more knowledge as well uh, on, and I had a, a great coach actually my coach back then Ken Benson I ended up with his son Daryl Benson coaching me for the Masters you've got to have a coach and I had a good coach too, so and we've got four gold medals and a new world record and now back into retirement again and enjoying it and looking at um, caravanning is the next thing we just bought a caravan and we're going to take off very shortly well enjoy that thank you so much for uh, reliving your incredible career and the moments within it uh, on Tokyo Bound with a steel we appreciate it thanks Sam thank you for the invitation and uh Have a great week watching the Tour de France. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.